I have a feeling that if you went home and opened up your cabinets or went into your pantry, you would find some food product on your shelves, and proudly on the label of that food product, there would be a phrase, something like, only the finest ingredients used. I actually Googled that phrase as a marketing phrase. There were like 19,000 entries on that phrase. You kind of want to say, well, duh, right? I mean, what, what do we think they're going to use in our products? Like, like inferior ingredients used? Or, or you'll, you'll, you'll hear in advertisements, um, and I, I think if I associate this actually with, I don't, I don't know why, but I associate this with uh, German car makers. But, but that phrase uh, of, of how our, our master craftsmen uh, select only the finest materials. You, you kind of hear this with, with furniture companies as well. And, I, and again, I find myself thinking, yeah. I mean, duh, right? I mean, you think I'm going to buy it from you if you're using apprentice craftsmen? <laughs> no. Of course I want skilled craftsmen at work if I'm going to buy this product from you. Why do companies bother to tell us the obvious? Well, I think the reason they bother to tell us the obvious is that most of us, when we were in high school, read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, right? We know that we can't take the obvious for granted in a, in a mass-produced world. We know that, that manufacturers, that producers, are quite likely to try to get across inferior ingredients on us. They're quite likely to get across kind of shoddy workmanship on us uh, in, in order to, to increase their profit, to increase their, their bottom line. And, and so uh, arose in the 20th century this, this whole concern for quality control, quality assurance, right? They, they know they need to assure us that they're not pulling something on us, uh, that the stakes are high these days in the modern world. Right? I mean, just ask GM, okay? Uh, in, in the modern world, you, you, you sell faulty products. You, you don't, you don't uh, manage your quality control well, and you're going to have lawsuits on your hands. You're going to have massive returns. You're going you're to have recalls. There's a lot at stake for companies. I actually think that this concern for quality and assuring quality is, is part, anyway, of what's behind the, the modern craft movement that is, that is such a big deal here in Portland, right? Uh, craft beers, handcrafted furniture. E- even the language of craftsmanship now is being, is, is being attached to things like computer programming and, and coding. Why, why is that? Well, I think it is very much because in this modern world, given what we deal with all the time, there is a a massive concern, a a need to assure ourselves of the quality of the product or the service that we're purchasing. This spring, we've been considering authentic Christianity. We've been using John's first letter written to Christians in Asia Minor towards the end of the first century. And, and this morning, John actually turns to this whole question of quality control 
or quality assurance. How can we be assured of the quality, not of a product that we've purchased, how can we be assured of the quality of our Christian lives? Especially since so much more than a recall is at stake. John's answer is that you, individual Christian, we, Christians together, can be assured, not because of anything we've done, but actually entirely because of the quality of the work that the divine craftsman has done in you, in, in us. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 13, if you're not used to using a Bible, the the big numbers are chapter numbers. The small numbers are verse numbers. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in the pews around you, it's found on page 1,902. 1,902. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. I'm just going to read the passage. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love. The perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right, if if you've been kind of with us throughout this whole series on 1 John, you've seen that John has been working kind of systematically and, and repeatedly through three different tests that mark out a genuine Christian, that the test of obedience, the test of love, and the test of belief. Now, Last week, for the third time, we saw that he returned to the test of love, pointing out that God is love and God's the source of all love, and therefore, someone who's genuinely connected to God, who's united to God through Christ, will will display that love because God is love. Now, from this point on, from verse 13 on to the end of the the letter, John's not going to be so neat and clean with his tests. He's going to start kind of mixing and combining them. He's, he's really at a stage in the letter where he's kind of synthesizing things. He's summing things up. He's, he's coming in towards, towards the end. In our text this morning, John picks up the sentence that we ended with last week, verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And he's going to take those, those two ideas, God lives in us, And his love is made complete in us. He's going to take those two ideas and he's going to elaborate on them. Now, if I could sum it up in a sentence, this, this, I think, is the the main argument 
of, of these verses that I just read, it'd go like this. The presence of God in us as Christians, the presence of God in us produces love from us. The presence of God in us produces love from us. And, and basically, the outline of the sermon, we're going to take that sentence and we're going to look at the two halves. First, the presence of God in us. That's verses 13 to 16. And then second, we're going to look at the love from us that God's indwelling in us produces. And that's verses 17 to 21. So, so as we consider the quality of God's work in us this morning, I want you to consider your own lives. I want you to consider the quality of your life this morning. Does it betray the presence of a master craftsman at work in you? All right, first, the presence of God in us. The presence of God in us. Look again at verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. All right, right there, according to John, if you are a Christian, God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who has existed from all eternity, the God who is love itself, God lives in you. And what's more, you, if you're a Christian, live in God. That's what he says in verse 13. And and then actually he, he says it again in verse 15. And he says it again in verse 16. God lives in you, and you live in God. Now, that sounds great, but what in the world does that mean? I mean, as I stared at the, these verses this week, I, I found myself thinking, oh, this, is, this is like crash, classic Christian language, right? Boy, it sounds so good. Oh, it sounds wonderful. God lives in me, and I live in God. And I haven't the foggiest idea what that means, really. I mean, practically, what in the world is going on? What, what, I mean, are we talking about like some sort of good, divine version of demon possession, right? I mean, we've got an idea of what it might mean for a demonic spirit to live in someone. We've we've read stories about that. We we saw stories of it in in the New Testament. If you've read the Gospels, we've we've seen, if, if you've watched any kind of National Geographic show, You've seen examples of this in in other parts of the world where people clearly seem to be possessed by a a power, a force that's that's not them. Is that what we're talking about here? Just a good version? Like a divine version of it? I don't think so. I don't think so because, you see, he turns the sentence around and says, we live in God. So I don't, I don't think any of us are going to argue that we kind of possess God in the same way that you think about a, a demon possessing a person. I don't think we're talking about possession. When we think about it from the other direction, you know, that we live in God. All right, at that point, it's kind of tempting to think of it in almost like pan, 
pantheistic terms. You know, God is, is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. It's, it's impossible to escape God. And so, so maybe in that sense, we live in him. Because after all, he's, he's everywhere. Well, I don't think that's what John means either. Because he ties this specifically to being a Christian. So if all he meant by we, that, that we live in God was that kind of God's everywhere and you can't get away from him, well, that's going to be equally true of a non-Christian as it is for a Christian, isn't it? And then once again, of course, he, he turns the sentence around and, you know, God lives in us and God certainly doesn't live in us because we're omnipresent, you know, because he can't escape us. No, I think we need to move away from primarily spatial ideas of understanding what it means that we live in God and God lives in us. When the New Testament talks about this mutual indwelling of us in God and God in us, the New Testament, and John is just one of many examples here, is drawing primarily on two main images, two different, two different images. The first one comes from Jesus himself. When Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, Jesus said, and I will remain in you. John uses here in in 1 John 4 the exact same verb that Jesus uses in John 15. We abide, or we, we remain, we live in God, and he in us. The way the, the branches of a grapevine are, are connected to the trunk. There, there is a vital link between the two, a, a shared life that, that flows from the vine, from the trunk, to the branches. And, and the New Testament says, so it is with Christians. The, the life of God himself, as we are united to God by faith through Jesus Christ, the, the, the life, the, the sap, as it were, the, the life, the divine life of God actually enlivens us. He makes us spiritually alive. When, when before we were spiritually dead, there, there's, a, there's a connection, a vital connection that gives life. All right, that's the first image that I think John is drawing on, and, and we know this because the verb he uses. He picks, picks up that very verb that Jesus uses in John 15. But there's a second image I think that John is drawing on as well and that the rest of the New Testament draws on when they talk about this mutual indwelling. He says there uh, in verse 13, we, we know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. He's given us of his spirit. In the Old Testament, the spirit of God in the, in the form of a cloud of glory descended and, and indwelt or, or filled the temple. Why did did God do that in the Old Testament? Well, it wasn't that God was becoming localized, like I'm I'm only in this one building. No, the the God of heaven and earth remains omnipresent. He he is transcendent. He he is everywhere. But but God actually, in in a a kind of a visible way in the Old Testament, descends in this, this glory cloud and fills the temple in order to to communicate to his people, I am am with you. I am actively, beneficially, personally present with you, the people of God, in a way that I am not with everyone else. 
Now, in the New Testament, Jesus comes along, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the true temple. It turns out that God is present with his people, not through a building, but God and man meet through a person, Jesus. Jesus is the true temple of God. And and to give expression to that so that everybody would understand what was going on, what happens at Jesus' baptism? At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit in bodily form as a dove descends upon Jesus. Does that mean that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before? No, not at all. Jesus is God. Jesus has and always is and always has been actually fully and completely in communion and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Now, what's going on at that moment is we're being told something about Jesus. We're being told something about who he is. He is the place where God's presence is for his people, actively and personally for his people, with his people. But then what does Jesus say? Right? Jesus comes along and he says, you, church, you are my body. You, Christians, are a temple, a holy temple. And the Spirit indwells the church, the, the, the temple that, that is the body of Christ. He fills us, not just giving us life, but actively beneficially, personally present with us, both individually, your bodies are temples, and corporately, we the church are a holy temple. He is with us in a way that he is not with everyone else. Now, we look forward to the day when God's presence is with us perfectly in the new Jerusalem. You remember Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John declares, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. We're not there yet. We're still looking forward to that day. But the Spirit indwelling us now, not just giving us life, but being present with us, is a foretaste. It's a down payment on that day in heaven when he is with us perfectly and forever. Now, John asserts this in verse 13, but then the question is, how can we know it's true? How do do we actually know that the Spirit has descended, that the Spirit indwells us, is with us, not just giving us life, but is personally present with us? How how do you know? I mean, in the Old Testament, this, this, this glory cloud descended, right? But the Spirit's invisible. Uh, when you become a Christian, this, this mark or tattoo kind of thing doesn't magically appear on your forehead, you know, letting you know that the Spirit is now inside of you. How do we know that the Spirit is present? I think too often we think that the proof of the Spirit's presence in a person's life or a church's life is kind of something spectacular, something really clearly supernatural, like, like speaking in tongues or or words of prophecy, or or healings, or, you know, you you fill in the blank. But what John says here in, in verses 14 and 15, so according to John, and really according to the rest of the New Testament, the proof of the Spirit's presence and indwelling is not the bare supernatural. Because there's lots of supernatural stuff in the world. 
And all sorts of miraculous things can be counterfeited, even by the enemy. No, no, the the, the unmistakable proof, the unique proof, the proof that cannot be counterfeited or repeated by anyone other than the Spirit himself is what he points to here in verses 14 and 15. The confession that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son that the Father sent. Here's the proof that the Spirit is present. This confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God, God himself, fully God, and yet fully man, come in the flesh in order to be the Savior of the world. This is the apostles' testimony who actually saw Jesus. That's what he says there in verse 14. You know, we have seen and testify. And it's the testimony of every genuine Christian after them. Verse 15, if anyone else acknowledges what we, the apostles, have seen and testify to. It is this confession that proves we live in God and God lives in us. Now, we we would expect this because this is what Jesus said. In, In John chapter 16, Jesus said that when he sent the Spirit after he ascended to heaven, that the Spirit would, would do something very particular. Jesus said, the Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. You see, fundamentally, the work of the Spirit is not to, to, to create like, you know, supernatural sideshows to impress us. The work of the Spirit, fundamentally, is to point to Jesus Christ. It is to reveal Jesus Christ. That's what Christ sent him to do, to take from what is Christ and to make it known to us. Sometimes people wonder why we don't see the Spirit working the way we see the Spirit working on the, on the pages of the book of Acts. You know, there are, these, there are these miraculous healings. People are speaking in tongues all over the place. Angels are showing up. Like, crazy stuff is happening. And sometimes people wonder, well, why, why isn't the Spirit at work the same way today as he was then? Well, friends, what I want to say to you is he is. The Spirit is at work today the same way he was back then. All, all that other stuff that you see in the book of Acts, it's important, it's real, but it wasn't the main show. The, the main show in the book of Acts, the really amazing thing, the truly spirit-wrought, miraculous activity was every time someone crossed from death to life to confess that Jesus is the Christ. And all the other miracles, as important and real as they were, and honestly, sometimes continue today, all of that stuff is, is just, it's support. Those are like the supporting actors, supporting the main actor, which is the spirit at work in men and women, bringing them to confess that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that Jesus is my Savior. This is what John points to here. How do we know that the Spirit is present? Well, verse 16, we know it because we've come to know and rely on the love God has for us in Jesus Christ. We're not looking for it any other place. We're not looking for it in any other way. 
Friends, that only comes from the Spirit. So, so I just want to say to you, Christian, if you're here this morning, you understand yourself to be a Christian, what do you think you received when you confessed Christ to be your Savior? Forgiveness of sins? Absolutely. Absolutely you received forgiveness of sins. Entrance to heaven? For sure. Without a shadow of a doubt, welcomed into heaven, definitely. Freedom from slavery to sin and and a cleansed conscience. Well, certainly you received that. But what John wants us to know is that if all of that weren't enough, you got even more. You got more than forgiveness. You you got more than, than a ticket to heaven. You got more than a cleansed conscience. You got God. You received God. Not just an assurance of God's love for you, though that alone is huge. No, but you received God himself. His life. His very presence with you. Christian God creator of the universe, dwells in you and with you. And what's more, you dwell in him and with him. His life courses through you. His presence is always with you to to bless you, to, to guide you, to protect you, to comfort you, to convict you of sin, to pull you back to him. You are in him. You are always present to God and with God. He can no more forget about you or lose track of you or fail to notice you than than you would lose track of or or fail to notice if if someone decided to come and live in your house with you. You'd be bumping into them all the time, right? This is you for God. You are with him always. Christian, if you confess that Jesus is the son of God, sent by the Father to be the savior of the world, then then on apostolic authority, I want to assure you, I want to encourage you, the spirit of God lives in you, and you live in God. And that leads us, that that truth, that, 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 that foundation leads us to the second part of John's argument. A master craftsman has taken up residence in you, if you're a Christian. And your assurance as a Christian flows really directly from the quality of the work that God is producing in you. So this is the second part of, 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 of the sentence. The presence of God in us produces love from us. Look in verse 17. The presence of God in us produces love from us. In this way, love is made complete among us. So, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. 
There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love, because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He's given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John says that God's presence in us produces love from us. That's the force of that that little phrase right there at the beginning of verse 17, in this way. In in what way? That that is, as a result of this mutual indwelling of God in us and us in God, as a result of that, love, he says, is made complete among us. Now, he's used this verb before, made complete. He used it uh, in, the, in the passage that we look, looked at last week. Once again, this idea of being made complete means being brought to its, its proper end, something being brought to the fullness of its purpose. Back in verse 12, he pointed out that, that the, the, the purpose of love, the purpose of God's love being made complete in us, was that the invisible God might be made visible through our love for one another, through the love in our lives. Now here, he actually specifically points out two kinds of love that God's presence in us produces. It produces first a confident love toward God, and second, a compassionate love towards one another. So God's presence in us produces love from us, confident love toward God, compassionate love towards one another. He starts with our confident love toward God. He points out that those who are indwelt by God will have confidence on the day of judgment because already they see God's life of love in them now. The, the logic here is, is, is very clear, and I, I think it's, it's something that anyone who's been a child understands. He begins to talk about punishment and fear, right? Fear has to do with punishment. I still remember to this day the dread that would descend upon me when my mom would utter those terrible, terrible words. When your father gets home, oh, oh, when I heard those words, I knew what that meant. It meant punishment was coming. Not the kind of easy, soft mom punishment you know mom punishment? My kids know mom punishment. Um, I, I remember mom punishment. Because at the end of the day, mom's, you know, she was a softie, right? No, it wasn't going to be mom punishment. It was going to be dad punishment. It was going to be tough. And as soon as mom uttered those words, I, I, I mean, I would look at the clock. And I would begin to dread 530 because that's when dad got home, kind of without fail. I would be really excited if traffic was bad and he didn't get home till closer to six, but it was just delaying the inevitable. I was afraid because I knew what was coming. John says that if we're afraid of judgment day, If we're staring at death and judgment day the same way I was staring at that clock dreading 530, 
if we fear God's presence, then it's clear that we have not come to know the love of God. We've not been made perfect in love. In that sense, perfect love is is an apprehension. It's, it's It's a trust in God's love for us in Jesus Christ. When we confess Christ, when when God takes up residence in us by his spirit, the result is not fear. The the, the result is, is confidence because we've come to know God's love. And we know that what awaits us on judgment day now is not punishment, but rather even more of what we already have because God's taken up residence in us. Well, what is it that we already have? What we already have is God's presence. What we already have is God's love. And so when, when, when God takes up residence in us and, and we are confident of his love for us, far from being afraid of judgment day, no, no, we have this confident love towards God. We actually begin to eagerly and boldly anticipate judgment day. We look forward to the day when Christ returns, to the day when Christ calls us home. This is what the gospel produces. The gospel produces confidence. So if you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, we we want you to understand this. Jesus Christ, the, the, the Son of God, God himself in human form, Jesus Christ volunteered to die for sinners. All kinds of sinners. Your kind of sinner. My kind of sinner. Sinners the, the world over. No one's excluded. No one's too bad. No one's too far gone. And here's the good news. The good news is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God declares that Jesus Christ's death was for you. That he actually took the punishment that you deserved, and there's none left to be paid. It's it's all done. He took all of it, not just most of it, but like all of it. And then Jesus got up from the dead, which which means that that his resurrection life can now be your life. You can be alive in God. God in you, you in God. In Christ, what awaits you on judgment day is not a scolding. It's not one last bit of punishment. It's It's not a public shaming Now, what awaits you if you are in Christ, if you accept Christ today, what awaits you is more life. What awaits you is a welcome home party. What awaits you is the endless love of God. But friends, the opposite is true too. Outside of Christ, what awaits you is judgment. If Christ does not take your judgment for you, you will have to bear it yourself. And I am certain that it will be worse than what I faced at 5.30 when my dad came home. Friend, today is the day to accept Christ. Today is the day to trust him that he took your judgment for you. I want to encourage you, just sitting right where you are right now, to put your faith in Christ, to acknowledge the judgment that you deserve, and to trust that Christ took it for you. And then to find 
as a result of that, that God himself takes up residence in you and begins to change you, begins to change you by his love and with his love. Friend, do this today. Do this today. And then come and talk to me about it or or talk to someone else about it so that we can rejoice with you. Now, if you're a Christian, you need to think about this too. This isn't just a message for non-Christians. The gospel produces confidence. It doesn't produce arrogance. The, The gospel should not produce in us a feeling that we're better than other people. Likewise, the gospel should not produce presumption or or, or license. We don't don't think that now that God loves us, I can kind of just do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. You know, I got my ticket. Now I'm going to get on with life. Now, that's not the gospel. But what the gospel produces is the confidence of a child with his parents, parents who who love him or her. You know, my, my children do not need to come up to me and brag and preen and strut in order to get me to pay attention to them, to, to, to love them. And, and by the same token, my children don't need to pretend to be something that they aren't so that I'll keep loving them. No, I, I, I know them. I know them better than they think I know them. I know them through and through, and I love them. I love them not because of what they've done for me, I love them not because of their accomplishments. I love them because they're my children. Christian, this is God's love for you. He has radically accepted you in the gospel. You you were not his natural born child, but because of Jesus Christ, he has adopted you into his family. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He loves you. And what that should produce in you is a humble confidence. No need to puff yourself up. No no need to inflate your reputation or to think you have to work hard to get his attention. No need to pretend any longer to be what you're not. Rather, just a confidence that leads to a desire to please him because he loves you. You don't want to please him so that he'll love you. No, you just want to please him because he already does love you and you are confident that nothing can change that fact. This is what the gospel should produce in us as Christians. But God's indwelling in us not only produces a confident love towards God, it also produces, and this is the second thing I want to look at in this this section, it produces in us a compassionate love for our brothers and sisters. This is the point of verses 19 to 21. Look there again. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Why do Christians love each other? Why do we love our brothers and sisters? Well, it's not because it's the law. It's not because we're told to do it, and so we have to. That's, you know, I mean, kind of sometimes what you see in families. Be nice to your sister. Be nice to your brother. No, 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 that's not not what's going on here. It's certainly not so that God will love us. 
Now, John says that we love each other because God has first loved us. Here's the work of the divine craftsman in our lives. When God lives in us and we live in him and in his love, his love has an effect on us. Uh, it's, it's guaranteed. It, it, it is so absolute that, that John actually can say that the person who says he loves God but then doesn't love his brother is a liar. A liar. That is strong language. But John's appeal here is really to kind of basic reason. He, he says, look, if you don't love the person standing right in front of you that you can see, if you don't love the person who, who has an immediate and clear appeal on your compassion, who can directly connect with you, well, if you don't love that person, there, there's no way you love God, whom you can't even see. It's, it's logically inconsistent, says John. If you're not doing the easier thing, loving the flesh and blood right in front of you, then you're certainly not doing the harder thing, which is loving the God who is spirit, whom you cannot see. Henson Baptist Church, what does it look like for us to love one another? What does it look like for us to give evidence that the divine craftsman actually lives here? Like we're his workshop. What does, what does that product look like? You know, this isn't something that we can outsource to the staff and elders. Right? Well, I mean, the, the musicians and the staff and the elders, I mean, we can, in one sense, put on all the things that are necessary for, for us to have a church service. Right? We can make sure that there are classes and teachers for the classes. We can make sure that there are people to play music, to accompany us in our singing. I can, I can prepare a sermon. But the staff and the elders, we can't do church for you. Can't do it. We can't even, brothers and sisters, restrict this love for one another to our close family and our friends. Because that doesn't give evidence of God at all. Because everybody does that. Non-Christian families love each other. Non-Christian friends love each other. No, if we're going to give evidence that God lives here, that God dwells in us and we dwell in God, it is going to mean practical, personal love for one another that crosses all the normal boundaries. It's going to mean noticing the person in this room who's sitting all by themselves and not letting them sit by themselves but going and sitting with them. It, it, it's going to mean inviting people into your home. Oh, I know, maybe you're embarrassed by your home, or, or, or maybe, you're, maybe you're busy. I get busy. But it, it's going to actually mean putting yourself out there, extending hospitality, and inviting people into your home, because that's where your life is. It's, it's going to mean not going on that hike by yourself or just with your family and friends, but looking for others to come along with you or to go on errands with you or to work on projects with you. It's going to mean helping each other move house, even though I don't really know you and you live on the wrong side of town. But I've got this Saturday free and my back is relatively strong. 
So when, when the call goes out on a Sunday evening or in the Henson newsletter, I'm going to respond because I don't just love my friends and family. It, it, it's it's going to mean knitting hats in the winter. It's going to mean changing oil in people's cars who wouldn't know how to do it themselves. It's going to be really practical, right? But it's going to be personal. It's going to, be main, it's going to mean taking time to hear each other's stories, to learn one another's history, to weep together, to laugh together. You see, it's not primarily about affection. It's not primarily about friendship. Though I trust those things will grow as we love one another this way. It, it's, it's about presence. It's about an indwelling in each other's lives just as God has indwelled our life, being present with us. It's about the, the confidence that comes from knowing that we're going to be loved no matter how difficult the truth is that I'm about to share with you about myself. You're not going to stop loving me because you learn about this truth. You're not going to stop loving me despite the great grief that I ask you to share with me. You're, gonna, you're not going to stop loving me because I invite, me, invite you into a joy that I have that's a joy that you want but don't have. It's costly. But friends, this is what it looks like to not be liars. I don't want us to walk out of church every Sunday a bunch of liars. A bunch of people who say we love God, but actually, if people could really see the, the love among us, they wouldn't see it. No. I want us to be a church. I hope you want us to be a church in which no one can accuse us of being liars. We want to be those people who, yes, say we love God, but prove it by our radical acceptance and our radical love for one another, who hear God's command to love, but don't even really feel it as a command, but rather just receive it joyfully because we want to please the one who has loved us so well first. Friends, what is the quality of your life? It's the quality of our life together. It, it, it's, it's too late on the day of judgment to find out. There, there, there are no returns on the last day. There, there are no recalls. There are no do-overs. There's either acceptance by God or judgment. You want to be assured of the quality of your life today, now. And the only way to have it is to invite the divine workman to take up residence in you. For us as a church to invite the divine workman to take up residence in us and to begin this work of love. We can't do it ourselves. You can't do it yourself. And the good news is we don't have to. He is more than capable, more than willing. And the work of love that he does in you, the work of love that he does in us will produce a confidence 
that on the last day will not disappoint. Let's pray. Father, it, it, it beggars the imagination. It, it, it blows us away that you would want to be with us. So filled with sin are we. And, and yet, by your grace, you come and you make us clean. By, by your grace, you come and you, you make us Objects of of your workmanship that that are worthy of your presence. Father, we pray that that we would, in fact, know that presence. We pray that we would be those who confess Christ, who who confess Christ from the heart. And, And we pray that you would indeed produce in us a confidence towards you that overflows in love towards one another. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.